Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. In the room, we've got three groups of people. We've got singles. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but we've got marrieds. Anybody married in the room? Here we go. Hey, act excited if your spouse is next to you. We've got engaged people. Anyone engaged in the room? Okay, there we go. All right. You are in the least uh, of my favorite of those stages. So here's why. Engagement, it feels like it comes with a lot of the responsibilities of marriage. You're planning things. It's stressful. You got to get dates. You're working through family issues and, you know, the in-laws and uh, bridezillas and there's just a lot going on. But there is one silver lining to the season that you guys are in. And that is called the registry. Now, (laughs) the registry, if you're not familiar, is when you put a list of things that you want from specific stores together and you send it out to people and you say, hey, we'd like some gifts and we'd like these specific gifts from these specific places. It's really the only time in life that you can tell people, I have very strict parameters around what I'd like you to give me. And then they're expected to give it. And I remember being engaged 11 years ago to my wife, Callie, and uh, going and, and man, what has made registering for gifts awesome in the 20th century is now you register and they have added a laser gun. If you haven't registered before, it's like you walk around the store and you're playing duck hunt and everything that you shoot ends up going to your specific registry that you have put together. And so we go to Bed Bath Beyond, we go to Target and we're registering for gifts. And immediately it hits me that my wife and I have very different things that we think we should put on the registry. She's very practical and thinks we need things like plates and, you know, dishes and different things to cook with. And I'm like, we, Target has so much in this room. I mean, we, there's an there's a electronic remote-controlled helicopter over here. And look, have you even seen the flat-screen selection that Target has put together? We should uh, register for a giant TV screen. And it just was very apparent that we had different perspectives going in to how we should use this unique season of getting things. Now, thankfully, my wife went out and we do eat on plates and we do have dishes and we do have things that we can cook with because that would have been, you know, eventually the remote control helicopter loses its luster after a while. What does that have to do with what we're going to talk about? Well, in life, in many ways, it's very similar to that season of a registry where you're going through and you're able to acquire things. You're not necessarily getting them from other people, but life, so to speak, is one act of getting something, the house, the car, acquiring possessions, acquiring experiences, acquiring things. And we're going to enter into a series for the next few weeks related to how followers of Jesus are to view the unique season that this life is as it relates to acquiring things. Specifically, we're going to cover in the next few weeks a new series called Generous, where we're looking at what it looks like to be faithful followers of Christ as it relates to our finances and really as it relates to all of life. Why are we going to cover this? Well, Jesus, more than any other topic that he covered, talked about money. And I think we're going to see why here in a second. And just to make sure everybody, you know, you can swallow your saliva and take a deep breath. There's not a big, you know, pass the plate and here's the offering and ask at the end of this. Because the goal is not for you to feel guilty and to give something. The goal is that we would be faithful, all of us, and we would be generous. So we're going to explore Jesus' teaching 
In Matthew chapter six, there are really several other scriptures, but if you have a Bible, you can flip to Matthew chapter six because what Jesus is gonna say is the stakes of how you use this season of acquiring things is far greater than the husband who would regret the fact that we got the flat screen but we don't have plates through our registry. He's gonna say, the way that you use this season of acquiring things, the way that you view finances and the way that you handle money specifically doesn't have an impact just in this life but in your eternal life. He's gonna say it reveals something about you and he's really gonna give us what I think is God's heart and passion for why this is such a huge topic that Jesus covered over and over and over, more than heaven and hell combined, he talked about money. And here's what I, I hope all of us leave and in t- preparing for this message was convicting to my own heart. I think God wants you to be generous. I know he does. Scriptures even say he wants you to be generous. He loves a cheerful giver. And it's not because God needs money. He doesn't need money. He wants you to be generous for your sake. He wants me to be generous for my sake because you experience, and I experience a freedom and a likeness to God himself, who calls himself a generous giver. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which we're going to explore more in depth next week, but I just want to give a big picture, overview, high level, and do as best as I can move all of us, including very much my own heart, to more deeply believe what Jesus says our opportunity related to money is in this life. So with that said, Matthew chapter six, if you have a Bible, you can flip there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some in our welcome center we would love to give you. But Matthew chapter six will be up on the screens either way. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus is in the middle of something called the Sermon on the, anyone know? The Mount, yes, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most famous sermon, it's kind of his inaugural ministry showcase and he's teaching a number of different topics. And one of the topics, as you would expect, he covers is money because just like every person in this audience has a relationship to money, for good or bad, every person in his audience had a relationship with money, for good or bad, that was impacting their life. So Matthew chapter six, starting in verse 19, and we're gonna go through 24, it says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures or possessions on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves can break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus says, hey, don't spend your life storing up treasures on earth, but rather store up treasures in heaven. Now, immediately, treasures is just a bizarre word. We don't really use treasures in our day and age. It's like, who has treasures? Pirates? But when you think treasures, all you need to fill in the blank there is possessions, a car, more square footage, more things, more vacations, more experiences. And Jesus is not saying any of those things are bad or God wants you to be broke. He's saying, don't spend your life and focus your life and focus using your finances to acquire more and more things. If that's what you set the target on, you are foolish. Now, why? It's not because God wants us to be broke. It's because God cares about your eternity. And Jesus is saying it's a bad investment. And the first thing we see from Jesus' teaching is money reveals something about your eternity. How you and I handle money, and that could be, I should have prefaced this way, this, this is not a series for people who make over $300,000. It's not a series for people who make $15 an hour. This is a series for everybody. I mean, you can be greedy and make 10 million a year and you give a million of that away and you still wrestle with greed. And you can be generous and you make minimum wage 
And you can be greedy and make minimum wage because greed and generosity are not an issue of numbers, they're an issue of the heart. And Jesus just said, how you handle your finances reveals something about the eternity that awaits you. And he says, don't spend your life focused on storing up things just on earth. And he gives two really practical reasons. The first is that he says, just because things break apart. If if the focus of your life is getting more things and getting the next car and getting the next phone and getting more, uh, whatever it is, the next upgrade in your life, you're only, you're perpetually going to be fighting a losing battle because things fall apart. Things need to be fixed. Things need to be replaced. And so he gives a very practical sense that there's always a new iPhone that will be released. And so you're always going to need another upgrade. There's always going to be the potential for if all you have invested is all that's in this life, it can break down. Now, I think, personally, all of us are deluded on this issue. And let me speak for myself, because it's easy for, uh, easier for me to speak for me, because you may not be this way, but we live in a culture and a climate in America, as the wealthiest people who have ever lived, that I don't know how we could not be deluded or confused or not able to see what's actually true about ourselves related to money. Because of the culture, and specifically, we live in Plano, a part of Dallas, Texas. Something's happening with the lights here. And part of one of the wealthiest and most affluent materialistic cities. So we probably are unaware of how focused on storing things up. It's just normal. It feels impossible to not compare to the people in our life that have X, Y, and Z, and we don't. In fact, there was a Russian missionary who had spent 10 years in Russia, and this was when I was at Watermark probably eight years ago, and he had come back and he was visiting what we call our staff prayer. Every Tuesday at City Bridge, we gather together, we have staff prayer, and as a staff, we pray for needs in the body and pray for just different things in general, and we'll also just share updates of what God is doing all over this place through his people. Anyways, we're at staff prayer then, and he had joined for that morning, and we asked him, hey, it's been 10 years since you've been back to Dallas. What has changed? And this is crazy. Without missing a beat, here's what he said. I mean, it didn't take him anything. Not have to think about it. What's changed in 10 years? Oh, easy. All the storage houses. Storage buildings are everywhere. Every person in the staff circle had the same response. Storage facility what? There's no, I I don't know that I've even seen a storage facility. And then everybody had the same experience that day driving home. Oh my gosh, they're everywhere. There's storage facilities all around us. I had no idea. And now today, when you drive home, you're going to see all of the storage facilities that are around us in this room. In fact, here's a fun fact. The number of storage facilities in the United States, do you know how many that there are? Not individual units. I mean, franchises. The number of self-storage facilities is 58,000 self-storage cities across the United States. Now, to put that in perspective, that is more franchises than McDonald's, Starbucks, Walmarts, Walgreens, CVS, and 7-Eleven combined. If there was an Olympic sport for storing things on earth, (laughs) the United States would win gold every time, as well as the gold medal for hoarding, because that's often what's taking place in a lot of storage facilities. And this is what I mean by... I think there's probably a level to which all of us are unaware. I know, at least for me, I I am. How much more generous I could be. How much more I could faithfully live for eternity, which is the second practical reason that Jesus gives. He doesn't just say, hey, don't store things on earth. Store them in heaven because they're going to break down. He says, store them in heaven because that's the best investment that you can make. That you're investing anytime that you financially give a single dollar 
through my kingdom, and I'm going to explain what that means here in a second. Anytime that you do, you are investing in something that will have a far greater return that will never be taken from you, that will multiply for all of eternity. I mean, that's the primary reason that Jesus says in another passage, he says, whatever you give towards my end or whatever you sacrifice, whether time, talents, treasure towards my kingdom will be repaid a hundredfold in this life and the next. That he's saying, hey, don't store up treasures on earth, not because God wants your stuff or God doesn't want you to have fun things because it's a bad investment. And every dollar that you spend towards yourself in this life, which just let's be candid, it, that's just, you, you gotta pay bills. It's a part of life. But he's saying anything that you do to be generous, any ways that you give towards advancing the gospel in our world, you're investing in something that will never be taken from you. And that's his primary hit. Is it's just a poor investment. I mean, it'd be like this. In 2003, if somebody came to you and said, hey, you should buy $10,000 worth of Apple stock. Now, in hindsight, you go, yeah, you should have. But in 2003, it's like, man, I don't know that that's a good deal. And if they said, hey, I just came from the future and I am telling you, there's no iPhone right now, no iPods right now, no AirPods. And Apple seems like a crummy company that's worth almost nothing. But if you buy $10,000, you will never regret it. That is an investment that is only gonna exceed whatever expectations you have. Now, if you believed him, you'd make the purchase. And if you made the purchase, do you know what $10,000 in 2003 would be worth today? $5.3 million in 20 years. That Apple and that investment was one that if you made, it would have been life-changing. Now, the reason I say we're deluded is Jesus is saying the same thing. And it can be hard for us to actually believe that anything you give, it's gonna far exceed anything that Apple would multiply, any stock, future portfolios on this life, anything you give towards my kingdom you will receive treasures in heaven that will never be taken from you. You're investing in the only asset that's eternal. It's a pretty profound statement. And so Jesus says, invest in that which won't be taken. Now, how do we give? Or what does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? It means to give towards God's kingdom. All throughout the New Testament, the two primary ways that Jesus says this takes place is by giving towards God's kingdom. That's God's church. That's a ministry that is advancing the gospel. And the other one is to the poor that caring for the poor. And we're not gonna get into all the nitty gritty details of what that looks like, but candidly, if you're in this body and you can't contribute to here and you financially could, I mean, some of us are just not in a place where you could financially contribute, but some of us just don't want to. And man, I have total understanding of where that is. Here's where candidly I, I wrestle as somebody who is your brother in Christ. I want you to go to a church where you believe in the mission and you can say, I wanna invest in what God is doing here because I believe in what God is doing here. And if this is not a place where you can do that, despite the fact that financially you have the means to do that, man, you're not hurting our feelings. We want to help you find a church that you can do that. Not for our sake, for your eternal sake, because you're missing out on investing in the only kingdom that will last. And Jesus says you invest by contributing to the saints or the advancement of the gospel and by contributing to the poor. Now, how much? Is it 10%? Is it before tax? Is it after tax? Is it, you know, gross net? What? I'm not going to get into really any of that right now. We're going to cover more of that in depth, but the issue is not a number. It's your heart. And Jesus said that heart is going to impact your eternity. The second thing that we see is further why Jesus and God is so passionate about this subject. He says, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. There's a relationship between what you financially prioritize and your heart. That's an interesting thing. And then Jesus takes a, a kind of interesting term. He's going, store up treasures in heaven. Wherever your heart is, or wherever your treasure is, your heart's going to follow. And on that subject, let's talk about the eye. It's like, we weren't on that subject. And he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body, whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And I'm going to come back to the eye and what is Jesus saying there. But what's very clear in the text is there is a relationship between your money and your heart. The second point we see from Jesus as it relates to this financial teaching is money reveals your heart. Money reveals something about your eternity. How you handle money reveals about your eternity and my eternity. And money reveals something about our heart. That Jesus just said, what you put your treasure or where you put your treasure is a reflection of your heart. The number one competitor for your heart, in other words, is not sex, it's not drugs, it's not the devil, it's money. Just said wherever your treasure is, is where your heart is. What? Yeah, more powerful than sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that for your heart is money. Now we begin to see why Jesus, more than any other subject he talked about, he talked about money to a bunch of impoverished Judeans. I mean, Jesus, this is not a very wealthy crowd you're walking around in this desert talking to. And yet over and over he hits on the subject because money and how it impacts our life has nothing to do with the number. Like I continue to say, to that impoverished group of Galileans and Judeans, he spoke about it because money has to do with your heart. Because money reveals something about your heart. The number one competitor, he says, is how you handle money. Two-thirds of all of Jesus' parables, when I say how much he covered, two-thirds of the parables are about handling money. One out of every 10 New Testament verses relates to money. 2,300 verses in the Bible mention finances. That's five times more than prayer and faith together. It's pretty shocking. Is it because God needs money? No, God doesn't need your money. God wants your heart and he cares about you. And as any good father, he knows how all of our relationships with money are impacting our life for better or for worse. And so of course he's gonna care about that issue that's so impacting the anxiety in the room, the pressure in the room, the depression in the room, the stress in the room. I mean, the second issue that leads to divorce and marriage is money. So of course, God, who loves you, doesn't need anything from you, wants everything for you, is gonna address an issue and cover this issue. I mean, the idea that God needs money is, is just insane, or that God and also is not against, some of you guys are unbelievable at making money, and God's not opposed to people making money. I mean, some of you guys, you just sneeze, and pfft, oh, there's a business that just popped up. Oh my God, oh man. And then all of a sudden, I, I ended up buying this boat, and I made a $300,000 return, and it's like, boat? 300? That, that doesn't even make sense. I know, I just, I can't stop making it rain, and that's not a problem. That's awesome. God's made you that way. The point and the problem is not money, it's the relationship. Whether you have a lot or a little, that's why Jesus goes heart of the whole. This past week was Halloween and my kids went out and we did Halloween trick-or-treating around the neighborhood. And they went and they got tons of candy. 
And man, I'm all for it. Get as much candy. You go door to door to door. We're going to, as long as we can, stay out and you fill your bucket with candy. My one and a half year old, it was the day of his life. He did not know why strangers were handing him candy, but he was here for, this is why God put me on the planet is what he's thinking. (laughs) We get back to the house and they've got tons and tons of candy and they begin to just just go to work in a way that I'm like, this is irresponsible parenting. We've got to cut this off, eating the candy. And they just ate so much. Now, as a parent, am I stopping them from consuming candy because I want to consume it myself or I'm angry that they would enjoy Jolly Ranchers, which who enjoys Jolly Ranchers? Or I'm angry that they would enjoy whatever Snickers or whatever it is. No, I care about them consuming that because I care about its impact on them. In the same way, like a father is not opposed to, hey, get all the, get, go to the neighbor's houses, get as much candy as you want, but I'm still concerned about how much you consume because it's gonna impact you, how you use or what you do with that candy. I'm deeply concerned about because I'm a father who cares about my kids. God is not opposed to acquiring and making money and I hope, man, God blesses your financial state so much this year and so much next year. But God, just like a parent with candy, is concerned about how you consume that to you. Not because he needs your money, but because he cares about you. And where your treasure is, reflects where your heart is. And the way that you and I steward or handle money, if it's self-absorbed and self-focused, it leads not to a stomachache like candy. It leads to far greater significant things in this life and the next. So of course, like any loving God, he's gonna care about your finances. Now he brought up the eye, which did feel like a, random left turn where he says the eyes, the lamp of the body, if they're healthy, the whole body's full of light. Saying if your vision is right, if your view and perspective is accurate and clear, it's going to impact all of your life. And if it's dark or off, which is where he goes in, but the eyes are unhealthy, you have cataracts, you're blind. If there's something impairing your vision, your whole body will be full of darkness, unable to see what's true and what's real. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's saying, if your vision is off as it relates to money, all of your life will also be off. If your vision is flawed as it relates to money, how you handle that and how you spend your life will also be flawed. If you embrace the perspective that our culture has around us of getting more and getting more and getting the house and getting the lake house and getting the boat and getting more and having more things and upgrading the lifestyle, having the nice trip, having the white picket fence, If you embrace with the culture around us, you have embraced a flawed perspective. That's what he's saying. If your perspective, your vision on this is off, everything else is gonna be off. Our culture sees life as the game of Monopoly. And what's the game of Monopoly? Remember, you played it probably as kids. If you have kids, maybe you played it recently. Monopoly, my kids love to play. And the goal of Monopoly is to acquire as many houses or as many buildings and things as possible. Our culture says that's what life is about. Jesus says life is much more like the game of Uno. Remember Uno? Your grandma played it years ago. Uno is a card game, if you're not familiar. And it's a card game, and the focus of the game is to get rid of as many cards as possible, to be the person who has the least amount of cards. Jesus says, life to the world is about getting. But I tell you, true life is found in giving. Life is a whole lot more like Uno than monopoly. It's a pretty profound thing. And I think Jesus would say the reason why that's hard to believe is your vision on it is off. And the reason it's hard for me to believe is my vision on it is off. 
And yet at the same time, there's parts of probably all of our stories and lives where we can connect to what he's saying. No matter how much you make or how much you have and how much you get, it doesn't scratch the itch. It's always a desire for more. I remember when I graduated from college and I came to work at a church for the first time and they told me, hey, we're gonna give you free housing and pay you $10,000. And I remember hearing that number and going, $10,000, I'm rich. Oh my, 10,000, I'm thinking they're gonna just hand it to me in a briefcase and I'll be in my room just swimming in cash and going like, what am I gonna do with all that money? And then life goes on and you get paid more. I mean, nobody gets in a ministry for financial reasons. But I look back on that moment, that posture of, wow, I can't believe that. And wonder where I've lost the heart that felt that way. And I know there's bills and kids and life and mortgages and things that are all a part of it. I get it. But I know, at least for me, without regularly being reminded by other people in my life who follow Jesus, life is not found, as Jesus said in Luke 12, in the abundance of possessions. It's found in me. I'm quick to forget and think that money is going to provide something. It just can't. Billy Graham said, if a person gets his attitude towards money right, everything else, it will straighten out every other arena of his life. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 spoke about this idea, and he says, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people to ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now look at the text. It's a very interesting verse and verbiage that he breaks down. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation in a trap. What's the temptation? They fall into temptation as they desire for more wealth that acquiring more things will solve their problem or will be enough. They fall into the temptation that God is not enough. They look to money to provide rather than to God. And he says, there there are people who out of that desire to do so have wandered from their faith. I mean, no wonder the scriptures hit on this over and over. As money tries to take a place that God is alone meant to play. And Paul, I'm sorry, Jesus in preaching this beautiful sermon goes here and further punctuates his passion around the subject. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, speaking about money and God, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The third thing we see revealed is that money reveals and how we handle it, it reveals who we serve. Money reveals who we serve. It reveals, are we servant of God? Are we a servant of ourselves? Are we a servant of money? And you read verses like that. I don't know if you're like me. I read that and I'm like, you can't serve both God. Are, you, are we sure you can't serve both God and money? I feel like I'd like to take a crack at it. I feel like I can serve God and also would love to serve. I'd love to be a faithful servant of a lot of money for you, God. That's how I want to serve. And Jesus says, at the end of the day, You're a servant of God and you use money to serve your God 
or you'll be a servant of money and you'll use people and use things to serve and acquire more and more money. I mean, as it relates to thinking, like, is God our God? Is money my God? I, th- I think there's different ways we can see in probably any given moment how maybe I'm actually focused more on money than I am on God. Or maybe I'm actually trusting more in money than in God. What do I mean? Well, when I make a purchase, am I consulting, especially you're making a big purchase this week or something's going on in your life. When you make a purchase, are you going to God? Hey, God, would you have us buy this? Or are you going to your bank account and saying, can I afford to buy this? That may be an indication of which one you're serving. I mean, it may sound mind-blowing to go to God and say, God, hey, all money is yours. Is this how you would hand, this is how you would, is this how you would have me use this money? Is this how I can honor you in my finances? Or do I go to the bank account and just say, man, I've got enough? Go. As it relates to young people, high school students, picking a major. When you think about, hey, where am I going to school? What am I going to study? Is the decision, hey, what are the God-given gifts and passions and desires and ways and wiring that I have and how would I best study in a career or in a major that aligns with those? Or is the decision, hey, which of these careers pays the most? May be an indication of, am I a servant of God or of money? As it relates, I mean, I saw this for years with young adults. They would make the decision to marry someone based on the compensation of the person they were in a dating relationship, despite the character, despite the reasons God would say that's not a wise decision. Why? Because of the master of money. And here's why master, money as a master is a bad thing. Because it's never satisfied. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse 10 says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. When money is the master, it's a bad master because there's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. John Rockefeller, who made billions of dollars in his day and was a billionaire at the time, one of the first billionaires in America, was asked, how much money is more money? Because he continued to work, continued to acquire more and more. His answer? Just one dollar more. Because whoever loves money will never be satisfied because money is a terrible master. It demands more to the point of debt. Demands, which is why, as a master, it has things that it uses, like the master card. Money is also a liar because it tells promises that it can't keep. It tells lies like, money provides security. Money doesn't provide security. You know I know that? Rich people get cancer too. The Proverbs even say that in... Chapter 18, verse 11 says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. The wealth, rich people think that their money makes them protected. They imagine it in their head, a wall too high to scale. Money tells lies. Money tells a lie, and this is particularly important for men. Money tells lies like your self-worth is connected to your net worth. Your value is in how much you make. That's a lie. Scriptures say your value comes from being an image bearer of God. It is fixed. It does not change. God himself gave his own life for you, man or woman, because of how valuable you are to him. Money tells lies. Money tells a lie that money is the source of provision. 
The money is the source of provision. How we get through life and how we can afford things, it comes down to money. The scriptures say, God is the source of provision. And we're to look and trust, no matter the economy, no matter how things go, that our God is a provider. And we're to look to him to provide, to put our confidence not in money or in a job or in a paycheck, but in our God. Perhaps the most ironic of all as it relates to trusting not in money, but trusting in God as Americans is this. If anyone should know, don't trust in this. It should be us who trust in God. Why? Because we print it on the money. In God, we trust. And yet money lies and says, no, you need to trust in this. And you better work more and you better do more because if you don't, I won't provide for you. And God says, you to look to me. I am your provider. I provide. And you to trust in me. Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. And I'm about to wrap up. But it, it's as though he's inviting us to experience a, a life that can only take place when we prioritize and we put God first. Above our finances, above anything else. God, you are first. What you say as it relates to my life, as it relates to my money, as it relates to the things, as it relates to life, I am seeking to put you first. You're first. And when he's there, things work. And when he's not, then he's not in first place or in the place of what God is. Because by definition, God is first. My kids, from time to time, or every once in a while, I'll go and I'll pick up the remote and I'll try to turn on our TV and it won't work. And I've learned, because this has happened enough times, I know exactly what the problem is. My one and a half year old has taken the remote and he's taken the batteries out and he's <laughs> bit, probably put them in his mouth a couple times and then he jams them back in there and he shuts it up, but he doesn't know how the batteries go. And so if they're in the wrong position, then it, the remote doesn't work. If they're in the right position, it works. And Jesus says, all throughout the scripture, the way that you and I experience the life that God designed for us to have is putting God in the right position. If you don't have the batteries in the right position, the remote doesn't work. If you don't have God in the right position, and first, God, you are the priority. It doesn't work. That he says, you put God first in your finances. You don't experience the abundant life as it relates to your finances? Put God first. Put God first in your marriage. You want to experience a life that, man, it works. God, God can only work, or God works best, works most clearly, works most powerfully when he's in the right position. And that position is first. Put God first in your family. Put God first in your home. Put God first in your work life. Put God first in your relationships. Put God first in your school studies. Put God first. That's the position in which God works. Certainly works most. Conclusion, we see the money reveals something about our heart. It reveals our eternity. And it reveals who we serve. And man, I'm sure there's different ways I could have said different things, but here's what I want you to hear. God loves you. He cares about you deeply. And he cares about how this issue impacts your life. 
He cares about your anxiety. He cares about you. And he wants a relationship with you. I opened talking about engagement and the registry and, you know, as I was thinking, it's an interesting parallel to how sometimes in life we can get distracted. And what I mean is in that season, one of the great things was you can acquire things through registry. But the gift of marriage, and so the marriage, our wedding day came, we got those gifts, we got them to our new duplex that we're going to live in, and so excited, and we're opening up, here's a toaster and, you know, uh, whatever, spatula and different things. This is awesome. But the true gift of marriage and engagement, it's not the gifts, it's not the plates, not the blender, it's a spouse. And how crazy would it be if in that moment we're married and engagement, we got the gifts, if I allowed those things, that stuff, to distract me from the true treasure of marriage, which is not those things, it's a wife. And she's going to bed and I'm out here just like, look at this toaster, this is amazing. You'd be like, that's insane. Because marriage is not about getting things. Marriage is not about having people send you gifts. Marriage is about a spouse. It's the true treasure and gift of marriage. And I think one day in heaven, I'll see more clearly what I believe with my heart right now. The true treasure of life is not found in things and in stuff and in a house and in the keeping up with the world around us. It's found in a relationship an intimate relationship with God Almighty. That's what life is about. Just like marriage, the true treasure is a spouse. In this life, the true treasure is not things, it's Jesus. And I wonder if that's why he goes so hard. So he doesn't want us to be the husband who's just sitting in there while their spouse is going off and he's distracted from caring for his spouse or the real gift and treasure of life by playing with all the new toys that they've got. He doesn't want us to be that way in life and miss out knowing the one who all of life is about. And if you're here and I'm closing, if you've never had a moment where you trusted in Jesus, I just want to be abundantly clear what we believe, what the Bible teaches, what Christianity is about. It is not about being a good person, attending church, giving to a plate or any of the gift offering slots in the back of the room. It's not about any of that. It's about accepting Jesus who generously gave his life on a cross, was crucified and died, to be the payment for your sin. And then he rose three days later from the dead, showing the payment for that sin was more than enough. And he put an expiration date on death. Now one day, all of us who know him will experience for eternity. And the way you become a Christian is not by checking a box, doing some action. It is by accepting Jesus as your Lord. God, I believe you paid for me on that cross. Your payment was more than enough. You're God who is more than generous, who wants us to be generous like our God. And today, the loudest message I hope you hear is that gift is extended for you. Whatever your story is, he paid for it. And it was more than enough because our God is generous. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. 
If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about CityBridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.